Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event in which Australian writer Tim Winton speaks with New Zealand broadcaster Jim Mora. Tim Winton is a leading exponent of short and long-form fiction. He wrote his first novel, An Open Swimmer, at the age of 19 and won the Australian Vogel Award. Since then, he has published 25 books. Most recently, The Guardian reviewed his novel, Eerie, as a superb tale of disillusionment and redemption, loss and beauty, a description that could equally apply to his other novels, including Cloud Street, Dirt Music, The Turning and Breath. Fiction aside, Winton has written on class, hospitals and the chemically underrated Western Australian town of Albany. We hope you enjoy this session. It's not Perth-like weather, is it? Not so much, no. It's nice and warm in Perth at the moment. Did you always hold me to buggery? I don't know what I'm going to do after that intro. <laughs> <coughs> uh, what I'm going to try and Super do... Supersize me. ...today with... Uh, I think I might have done that myself, as you can see. <laughs> what are your airline food? What I'm going to try and do today with Tim's permission is to ask the sorts of questions that readers may want to know of him rather than you know, the critics, rather than people having studied him, because he's also studied a lot. And I don't want to ask you the same old questions, but we could maybe scoot through a scene setter. Uh, you wrote admired books that sold reasonably well, sold modestly, and then came Cloud Street, that little, well, actually not so little, more than 400 pages, work of genius, and that changed everything for you. And the reason I'm asking a bit about that is that I still think you're a bit, the rest of us aren't, but I still think you're a bit surprised by how Cloud Street reached out and grabbed the public. Yeah, I, I can't account for it. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm glad I don't really have to, in, in a way. Um, and it came at a time when, um, we, you know, when I, we, were, we were broke and we had three little kids and uh, I had, just had no sense of where... The, the next mortgage payment was going to come from. So when Cloud Street came out, it was um, it was a bit of a miracle, really. And it put my kids through school and paid the mortgage for years and years and years. So you know, I'm, 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 I'm forever grateful to it. So there are some books, you know, you don't have favourite books in the way that you, you, you don't have favourite kids because that's bad parenting. Um, <laughs> you have some favourite books just... For no absolute, no intrinsic reason to do with the book themselves, it's just um, some pay their way. Yeah. And um, I so you know, it was a book that I was, you know, I enjoyed writing, but I um, I was surprised people liked it as much because it was full on. It was you know, it was it was a kind of a vernacular festival, you know. The rest of us were not surprised, but you, writing still surprises you. Um, and you say, this is someone else's question actually, unlike other professionals... I'll give someone else's answer, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this could be interesting. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> unlike other professions, experience in writing doesn't count for a lot. And this is something you told Jennifer Byrne in an Aussie television interview, uh, that in your case the pressure increases, you're never sure if your trick of pulling things out of the air is going to work again. You have to learn to write all over again each time. And the rest of us think, how can this be? Because a million middling, struggling writers think that you 
stride confidently across the sunlit uplands, and yet it's not like that. No, um, and, and I, I think the older, the older I've got, um, the harder it, it gets. And um, people think that you have a, some sort of confidence. And what they don't realise is that um, it's a little bit like sports people. Most of their confidence is manufactured. You know, you have to hypnotise yourself into, into feeling confident. You, know, you have to convince yourself to be confident enough to, just to be able to get something down on the page, you know. Because why does anyone want to read what you have to say? Um, you don't... Yeah, there is... The confidence is... Um, is totally bogus. It's yeah, yeah. You just have to hype yourself up to, to to keep going. And also, just because you wrote a book last year doesn't mean you can write a book this week. I'm amazed at that. Um, so you, you're having to, and it's it's nerve wracking. You know, it does tax your um, your, your spirit a, a little bit to um, to to, uh, to be able to go you know go out there and do it in public in a way because you're writing in private, but the results of that work go out to the public. And um, so, you know, dying on stage, um, you know, to die on stage in front of five or 1,500 people or whoever's here... It's hard to tell. Um, ..is embarrassing, but to do it in front of tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people is mortifying. That anxiety and constant reinvention, though, I presume, makes you a great writer. Any complacency would diminish from the, the writing... I don't know. I think if you had native confidence, um, a bit of complacency probably wouldn't hurt. I, I just, you could afford it, couldn't you? I mean, there are, you know, there are certain musicians and some artists and lots of politicians who are just amazingly you know, gifted when it comes to confidence. Yeah. Um, yeah, back And, them. you know, particularly in, you know, with the politicians, complacency doesn't seem to bother no, them at all. That's true. It doesn't, doesn't seem to alter their prospects. That is true. And by God, some of the legislation they bring down, just, you know... Genius. Impeccable. Yeah. <laughs> I also read you say somewhere that writing doesn't change much in the world. And I'm not sure about that because you're one of the writers that makes me, and I'm sure many in this audience, uh, think differently about the world and our place in it and the way we live our lives. And people must have told you this. Yeah, but people, you know, feel obliged to say nice things. I mean, that's one of the lovely things about civilization is that we sort of, you know, try to get along and by just saying half-true things to each other out of kindness. It's, it's nothing, to, nothing to complain about. Um, but no, I don't think my kind of writing, at least, uh, changes, changes things. I, and I don't say that sort of glumly. I, I don't think that, a, that a, a novelist should feel that they have to change things. I think I'm in the business of producing useless beauty. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's a place for that. I think humans, humans need beauty and they need um, things to contemplate. But um, I think when I was younger I felt that, you know, that, that, you know, that I should be able to change the world. But um, no, I... I, I um, as a citizen, I think you can change the world, you know, but you'd need to do that with other people. Has he been too modest, do you think? No, it's not modesty. I think it's realism. Okay, so one day, so what is the Tim Winton strapline? One day when 
you die, as we all will, and they paddle out beyond the breakers and scatter your The way you're talking about me, I'll never die. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be walking on the water, won't I? What would be the 25 words or less that you would like them to remember you by? I mean, how would you like it all assessed one day? Um, well, I can't answer that. Um, that's, that's a horrifying idea. I mean, not that I'll, not that I'll be dead, but I just... I've, you know, I've fulfilled all my ambitions. I, I, all I ever wanted to do was to be able to be allowed to, to write and to make a living from writing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I don't have... He paid the bills. In terms know? of... Yeah, and you've often said that, and we can understand that because of the history of your writing, your early writing and your upbringing. But as, as part of the reason why you don't think writing can change the world is because of despond about what has happened to your home state. And that comes through, of course, most latterly in, in Erie, uh, West Australia d during the mining boom. And no matter how lyrically you write about the planet, you know, the bulldozers mm. doze on. No, I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, um, about that. I think it's, a, I think, you know, and of course the older you get, the, you know, the, the clearer you do see the world and, and your position in it. Um, no, I don't think it's about um, despondency or, or despair. I think, you know, my position really is just about that, that art doesn't, shouldn't need to be um, a form of utility, you know, a kind of a... Um, but anyway... Um, it was an interesting time to live, as any Irishman would uh, could tell you, to live through a period. You know, when you know, we, we we grew up in a state that was, you know, um, a no-account state. You know, we're on the wrong side of the wrong country in the wrong hemisphere, um, and we just didn't, yeah, we just didn't count. And then suddenly, and we were always a mendicant state, depending on the rest of the. The Federation, so we were just a poor brethren from the West, feeling put upon and um, ignored. And then suddenly we got rich, um, and the and the the trajectory that we went from from being ignored to being smug, it was just it was instantaneous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and there were people, you know, as as I sort of. Um, my character fulminates in one of his long hungover rants in the, in the book. He, you know, he just... There were, there were people in our state, you know, now billionaires, who are so smug and so self-satisfied that you would swear that a generation ago they went out into the desert and planted seeds of iron ore into the dirt with their very own bare hands, one seed after the other, and they stood back and they waited for the rain, and then it's almost as though that all that dirt out there was, was their work, um, and rather than just you know, being able to be a little bit humble about their great good fortune and ours. Nicely put. But also, you know, we all lived as though it was going to go on forever. Yeah. And, the, and the smugness and the, the ill-preparedness for, for the downturn. Um, and, you know, I, I lived in Ireland, uh, before, you know, when it was poor and, uh, and I've been back when it was rich and I've been back since and it's no longer rich and everybody's just standing around in the smoking ruins thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> 
<laughs> Nobody saw it coming. Um, so it's, it was, you know, it's a, it was almost like a fable, and we were li- we were living some moral fable yeah. of, um, um, about smugness. A fable and an illusion, because you know you write about the fragility of life in that bright, harsh, pretending environment. Mm. Yeah, you see that all the time. I don't think we, you know, it's part of modern life, or I guess it's now postmodern life, of living as though there are no consequences. It's, it's a strange way to live, you know. The, we're all out there shopping um, to the very last moment as though the way that we live, the, w- the way that we consume, the way that we think as though, you know, we, we th- we're thinking, I don't know what we're thinking, um, living as though there are no consequences to our, to our actions. Um, and that's, a, yeah, that's it's interesting to observe and it's interesting to participate in. It gives you things to write about. Shopping but drowning. Yeah. Um, drowning is, of course... If we're waving anything, we're waving a credit card, I guess. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> drowning is such a theme... Not drowning, you. swiping. There's a Canadian uh, songwriter called uh, Bruce Coburn, and he's got a great song, which is about despair, and he says, I, I've... And he's talking about the credit card. He says, I've proven who, have, I've proven who I am so many times that the magnetic strip's worn thin. Uh, 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 just way, everywhere you go, now you go to the airport, you... You have to prove who you are, and, and the way you prove who you are is by sticking a piece of plastic into a machine. Now that you mentioned Bruce Coburn, I've got to ask you something. People, oh, are, I'm sure people ask you sort of Tim Winton tidbit questions. Which was the best Steely Dan album? <laughs> uh, Royal Scam, for my money. Royal Scam. Yeah. I thought you were going to say Can't Buy a Thrill. I've been thinking this for a long oh, time. I do like Can't Buy a Thrill. There's a couple of songs on that that always remind me of pulling over... Uh, at, at the end of the day in the Kimberley, looking for just somewhere to roll my swag out, just to, just to find a little clearing at the, at the end of the day. And for some reason, there's a couple of songs, Dirty Work and a couple of other songs yeah. that just remind me of just that last... Because there's only a couple of, you know, clement moments in the, in the far north of Australia, you know, 15 minutes after the before and after the sun comes up and, and 15 minutes before the sun goes down and 15 minutes after the sun's gone down. They're the only kind moments in the day. The rest of it's... <laughs> <laughs> the world's trying to kill you. Um, so there are nice moments when you do find some congenial spot to r- roll your swag out and get a fire going and, and look out and think, oh, this is nice. Speaking of the world trying to kill you, um, getting back to the sea as our home and the sea as, you know as our killer, which is in your books. You still surf. Were you ever as brave as the boys no. in breath? No, I was never brave. Um, no, I, I, I was enthusiastic and remain so, but I have no courage. Um, and I've learned, as I've, as, I've, as I've aged, like old footballers, you, you learn to, to do more with less. And uh, you learn to... Avoid trouble, and um, it's just you know, it's just like the way you, you get up in the morning and head to the bathroom. You do it with the, the most, um, the cheapest possible, ex, you know, expense of, of energy. You take the short way. So um, no, I, I, I love I love surfing with a sort of a, an irrational passion, but um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't do it. I don't do it for the the machismo thrills of, of the sorts that are in the book. Is it possible actually to adequately 
You see, you're the closest writer I've ever seen do it. Is it possible to adequately describe surfing to a non-surfer? Probably not. And uh, and that did occur to me in the middle of uh, writing Breath. Like, what the hell am I doing? Um, Because you're trying to find um, language and also you're trying to, you know, pretend that you're you're attending a kind of literary language for something that um, is essentially a physical sensation. And it's like when you write about sex. It's, it's awful. Because, um, you know, even, peop- even most people's experience of sex, which is probably, let's say, let's be honest, fairly rotten, um, <laughs> is, is better than the language that you're going to use to describe the experience, <laughs> just to be honest. Um, and again, surfing or, you know, other things that are really about sensation, they're, you know, com- completely sensual experiences about being caught, you know, in the moment. Um, very hard to describe. And also very hard to describe without the kind of jargon... I mean, t- surfers can describe it to each other because we have this sort of um, nonsense ling- lingo. Yeah. Um, and it all... It definitely communicates to each other. We know what we're talking about. Um, but to somebody else, it just... It's, I've always thought you strike just the right note with sex, actually. I've <laughs> quietly applauded your so handling of the topic. If you've been reading my mail, have you? <laughs> <laughs> One more general writer question. Um, does writing make you... You're very modest about your writing, as we've found out. Does writing, however, make you a better person or a happier person, or were you just always compelled to do it? Um... Well, I was always compelled to do it. There's no question. I don't think... I think writing well on a, on a, on a good day, you know, having written well, makes me a happier person. But writing badly or well or writing at all or writing not at all doesn't have any effect on, on, on one's character. I don't think it makes you a better person. But I... I and I can't, again, I can't really account for how, I, how or why I became a writer. I just... Um, I was possessed of the idea as a, as a young boy, and um, I just I, w- I just wanted to. And then, again, um, for having had that idea, you know, within days of and minutes probably of that idea, I thought I was a writer. Um, and I and I thought of myself as a writer um, from the age of ten, and particularly uh, through the years of adolescence. I just assumed I was a writer. I mean, it's horrifying to <laughs> reflect on. Um, and I was writing all the time, but I was a, I was a schoolboy. Um, I'd never met a writer until I was an adult. I didn't know what a writer was. I didn't know what... I probably didn't know what good writing was. I'd, I'd read some good books. But then I couldn't really choose between the good books because I, I thought Alistair MacLean was every bit as good as Mark Twain. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Guns have never owned. <laughs> you know, and I was brought up on Archie comics. You know, I, um, I hope you're going to ask me about whether I preferred Betty over Veronica. <laughs> it is one of the great okay. questions, isn't it? And I wonder what your reply to that is. Oh, no, it keeps me up all hours of the night, that one. Because <laughs> that really is a reflection of character. Um, Betty was the blonde and Veronica was the brunette. Yeah, she was nice and, yeah. and, and yeah, Betty was dark and nasty, a bit sort of Catherine Zeta-Jones, you know? Yeah. Um, okay, I got them mixed up. Yeah. Can but I, 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 probably actually, I probably had a thing for Jughead, really. 
So was it providence? You see, I want to ask you a bit about providence and the invisible hands. So were you steered into writing? Because, I mean, the invisible hands seem to have been at work in your life with Cloud Street. Mm. If, I, yeah, if, I, if I was... No, I don't know if I was steered into writing. I mean, I didn't have any literary figures in the, in the family. There, were, there, were, there weren't that many books, although we, we did revere books. Um, um, I, had no, I had no sort of um, examples. Um, so I... It's a, it's a mystery to me, but I, and I was, and I was lucky, and I had good teachers, um, and uh, and I, I was lucky in that I came of age at a time of new uh, cultural confidence yeah. in, in Australia. I think if I'd been born in 1950 rather than 1960, my life would have been different, or not, you know, t- ten years before that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I came of, of age at a time when Australians were sort of finding their place in the world. We sort of stopped tugging our forelock a little bit. Uh, by the time I was a teenager, the 70s had come along, the Whitlam government had... You know, things were, things were changing. People had lost some of that kind of colonial um, sheepishness and shame. Um, and so then it, you know, now when I think as a middle-aged or, you know, late middle-aged man, um, grandparent of two... Um, I just, I just think the, the fact that I've been able to make a, a living from writing fiction, um, you know, literary fiction for 35 years, probably says more about my culture than it says about me. Um, you know, I, I could have had the same work and the same work ethic and the same measure of talent um, and probably been a, you know, a disgruntled English teacher um, in the 1940s or the 50s. He said this backstage, and I was remonstrating with Tim because I said, no, the talent would out. There are a lot of talented writers who are unrecognised, but the great talent surfaces. So we'll agree to disagree on that, shall we? I did say disgruntled. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I, I just don't... um, I can't see my my life like that. But then, you know, as you get older and you think, well, what if, then... That you see just how how fortunate you know that you you are and how your life could have been different if only this hadn't happened or that hadn't happened. Yeah. Um, and you know, just to go back to the you know the life saving force of Cloud Street, you know, I mean, I, I lost that manuscript temporarily on a bus at Rome Airport. Um, it was only a matter of a minute or two, um, and I you know I'd gotten off a off a bus we were heading to. To, to Greece, um, we were going into the air terminal, and I had a sleeping three-year-old in one hand, suitcase in the other. My wife had the other two suitcases, and that was our entire life that we were carrying at the time, um, except for that other one bag, which was the, the manuscript, um, typescripts, and um, carbon copy. Of, uh, of How did that feel? That moment. I was I was nearly sick. It was there was a guy who just came as we came out, we were walking into the glass doors, and they were opening up. And there was a guy tapping me on the shoulder. And it, everywhere I go, people try to sell me drugs. So because I've got long, <laughs> I've got long hair, you know, and they don't know what a kind of Calvinist Puritan I really am. But um, there's this guy who was tugging on my sleeve, and you know, I was a bit preoccupied, so I was a bit impatient with him. But he was just pointing back at the at the belly of the bus, more or less saying, is that your little grey sports bag? Wow. And um, 
he was a big whiskery fella and I, I could have planted I could have tongue kissed him you know? <laughs> <laughs> if he'd asked I tell you I would have been I, I would have obliged because um, I couldn't have I couldn't have started again I couldn't have I couldn't have I couldn't have pulled it out no. again I couldn't have, yeah so I mean I, I get a little bit of a cold sweat just thinking about that yeah, it's I don't amazing. know why I'm even telling you the story it was because it's a good story <clears throat> Um, and those invisible hands are everywhere. Uh, a quote from Dirt Music. This land looks dreamt, willed, potent. Fox's mother sees the world as wholly joined commingling, uh, you know, even through all the inevitable wretchedness of life. Page 370. Oh, I remember it well. Some, <laughs> some kind of spirit rolls through all things. There is some fearsome memory and stones and the wind and the lives of birds. There is holiness, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, I think so. I th- you know, I, I think the world, the natural world is in, enchanted. I think that, that's something that we lost with the Enlightenment um, and, that, and that peoples uh, who, around the world who, who, who didn't completely succumb to the, the kind of the mechanistic view of, of life that we've, we sort of inherited with the Enlightenment um, uh, you know, have an enormous advantage of still feeling life in the world and those places in the world where life still exists, you know, because we're doing our damnedest to um, expunge all, uh, to squeeze the juice out of it and kill it. But, um, yeah, I think, I, think, I think existence is, is holy. I think, I think matter matters. I think it's holy and I think to live in the world and not feel that it's sacred uh, and, and, a, and a gift and that we're not a gift to one another is, um, is t- to live in poverty. Um, and uh, you know, I think people are uh, uh, people are people suffer and and do terrible, th- monstrous things to one another. But we're not monsters, and um, and I, so I, f- I feel hope in 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 nature, and I feel hope in when I in the faces of strangers and loved ones. You know, you just get a otherwise you despair. If you didn't, you know, if you didn't feel that that there was some, you know, as, as whoever in the book says, it's talk, and he's only ripping off Wordsworth anyway. But if there wasn't some spirit, you know, rolling through all things, then yeah, I think you'd, you'd, that's a license to despair. And, um, and I think people who do despair, I mean, I I get that. I think there are points in life, and you know, where there's legitimately no, no hope, and it's a terrible place to be. And yet all your, I shouldn't say all your characters blindly, but a lot of those characters in your books, um, when all is lost, something keeps them going. They're stubbornly strong. They have a loyalty to something. That always comes through. Yeah, I, I think perhaps, you know, people are wired to, to hope. You know, I, it always amazes me to see um, people who are in terrible situations um, and you know every every war and every struggle produces those those same kind of um, conundrums you see people living in rubble um, telling their children that everything will be all right when you know on the on the surface of it there's no real reason to to think that everything will be all right but you tell your kids that it'll be all right in a sense, you're telling yourself that it'll be all right because you need it to be all right, and you'll you'll do whatever's in your 
body and bones and brains to make it all right. So, yeah, we are kind of, we're wired to, to survive and to, to make sense where things don't seem to make sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, you see Australia, just before we leave that topic, as a, <coughs> a spiritual country uh, with a very irreligious overlay. Mm. There's always that strange tension all the time. Yeah, it's a peculiar thing to live in the, the most you know, irreligious um, and, and, and secular culture. I mean, I, I certainly appreciate living in a secular cultural space because it's peaceable. Um, but it's a strange thing to, you know, to be... Because we were sort of... You know, modern Australia was always modern Australia in terms of the Australia we know of it today. It was post-industrial revolution. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we live in a strangely um, irreligious society um, over the top of the most... You know, an ancient island with, the, you know, with an ancient culture which goes back as long as human history. I mean, there are very few places where people have been living for... 40, perhaps 60,000 years, and still with, still with language, still with uh, ancient ways of um, seeing and cosmology. That, so it's a weird thing to be you know, sandwiched over the, over the top of that and to be, you know, have our fingers in our ears and heroically not listening to, um, to the, the earth beneath our feet and the people you know, that, that we've tried so hard to displace forever. Are you a writer because you were born with a kind of mindfulness? You see, mindfulness is very vogue, isn't it? And, you know, yeah, and, and, there are and very useful. Yeah, my wife, my wife. But were you born with that? You know, the rest of us have to sort of practice 10 deep breaths and listen for sounds and look at the colour of trees. I'm not sure if my parents would say I was the most mindful boy. Um, well, you notice things, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah I, perhaps I was a... Perhaps I was a good observer. I mean, I was always a shocking eavesdropper uh, as, a, as a child. Um, and when you live in an asbestos house, uh, you know, with no insulation, there's not much that goes on that you don't hear, particularly if you don't sleep well. Um, I used to be... I, you know, so, some boys could always, you know, tell the, the make and model and probably the registration of every car that went past in the <laughs> night, you know. But I could, I could, I could tell who, who was walking through the house. Uh, let alone he was on the Kazi. Um, yeah, I was. I was. Um, I didn't sleep, so I, I listened in. I just lie there, bored out of my mind, just um, tuning in. Um, so I guess I got some. I got something out of that. But um, I don't think I'm very conscious. So in that sense of mindfulness, you're, you're concentrating on on concentrating. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I've never been very good at that, and I've. I'm never very good at consciously observing things. I, I, there are things that just mentally stick, you know, whether they're uh, sense memories or, or um, just you know, social memories. Some things, things stick. The things that stick are the things I, I, I work with, the things that I, I haven't been able to shake off. Because, I mean, can you imagine getting through the end of every day remembering everything that happened all day? <laughs> it'd just be exhausting. You know, you'd... you'd You'd climb into bed like a man falling overboard, you know, you'd just sink to the bottom. You'd just be freighted, totally full with every, everything that had happened all day, most of which, mercifully, you forget. It's the things that stick, the things that um, adhere, that uh, you, you get to work with as a writer. There's, of course, there, there is you in your books, of course, and that ability to listen um, comes through particularly in Cloud Street. Um, 
that's one of the things I noticed about that. What would your, can I ask you, what would your characters think of you? Fox and Kelly and Scully and Fish and Queenie. Would they like you? Would they like the way you live the choices you've made? What would they think God, of I've you? never been asked that question before. That's, um, that's freshly baked, isn't it? Um, I don't think they'd think of me at all. I mean, I, um, some of them would, I'm sure, think very poorly of me. You've spent your life with a lot of them. Yeah, but, you know, soft-handed... Um, Middle-aged nobody. Um, no, that's an interesting thought. I'm going to wonder if, wonder if Fish Lamb would even recognise me. Um, because I'm, I guess I'm part of, not just imaginatively, I'm, you know, I'm part of the world, that, of, of their world. You, you know, you're right. I mean, I, um, I write about the, the kinds of people that I'm from and the kinds of people that I know and I, and I live um, amongst, I don't always feel like they're kind of people, though, and that, that's that awkward feeling of, and I'm sure every human feels that, that I don't quite fit. You know, everyone else is a square peg, and I'm, I get to be the only round peg. Everyone, I'm sure everyone feels that. Um, Do you reckon? Oh, is it just me? Should we pull? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh. What is this, Dr. Phil, or is it's it only Oprah? You. <laughs> <laughs> is no, I think at a certain times, I thought so. Anyway, um, we all feel we all feel existentially awkward. You know, some of us are feeling a little more awkward than others at <laughs> present moment. But <clears throat> yeah, I, I um, you know, as a as a as a citizen and as a family member and a, as a writer you, you, you have your alien moments you think um, um, so I, yeah, I wonder if, if, if my characters would claim me in the same way that I would never make any assumptions that my community would claim me or um, or my family will have to claim me even if it's off the mortuary slab you know, it's my name will be tied to the big toe, you know, they have to yeah but it's, you know, I hadn't thought of that that's you very see, anxiety provoking um, you're one of those writers um, where just about every leading critic in all the great newspapers have tremendous things to say about you and say he's a genius and they are just they revere you. But the one I remember most is from the Times newspaper and the guy said, and this is on your books so it's not hard to remember, it's quoted on a couple of your books, he said he is the poet of baffled souls. The poet of baffled souls. And I thought that's right. You know, I mean, you could choose any phrase and think that's right, but that's always stuck with me. You well, are, it's definitely you? a kind thing to say. I mean, it's... Um, we'll take the poet bit out, but, uh, yeah, I am interested in baffled souls. Um, um, I, and I was always interested to write... I don't know why, because it was it's a bit of a challenge. I, I, was, I was interested in the kinds of people who have strong feelings um, but don't have a rich lexicon um, with which to express them. Mm. And, um, and I remember there's a um, terrific old uh, Robert Duvall film which is directed by an Australian, uh, Bruce Beresford, called Tender Mercies. I don't know if you ever saw it. Mm. And Robert Duvall's playing a broken-down alcoholic uh, country and western singer. I'm glad no one ever pitched this uh, film to me in these terms because I just wouldn't watch it. <laughs> Another one of those, you know. Um, and his, his girlfriend just, uh, you know, and he's 
he's morose and he's shut down and he's he's not communicating and his and his girlfriend says to him you know just tell me what's wrong and and he just sits there and she keeps asking him tell me you know, she, and eventually she's she poked him so hard that he just he sort of explodes and he says i can't woman god damn it you know don't you understand i just can't so he can't say what is wrong with him and i guess i was always interested in the people who can't um for whom you know their, their, their lives are uh are hard and they and their feelings are strong and they just don't have the words to express them um and it seemed to me that it was, especially when I was a young man, that not enough, not enough uh, attention and, and respect was paid to those people who, who, who were, had strong feelings but were taciturn and, and couldn't, couldn't express themselves. Yes. So I was just interested. And also, they, they, you know, a lot of those people were the people that I, I grew up with and uh, you know, went to school with and played sport with and um, uh, just you know, got beaten up by. I love the way you honour, and I'm sure the audience does. I love the way you honour those people. That's one of your greatness. Well, particularly the people who, who beat me up. Yeah, I, I was always yeah, always, and still loathe the odd one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because and also well, yeah, uh, being beaten up was help. You know, it was very useful to me as a as a young person. I mean, I don't recommend this. I don't. Didn't go, get to go, go, any harm. I don't go. I don't go around to schools and just you know say, you know. Revere, revere your school bully. Um, but, it, you know, being... I didn't have any weapons. I, I didn't fight back. I, all I had was... I, um, I just to tell people stories. I mean, I used to get... This is shocking guy. He used to live over the road, just down the road. And he used to see me come out of my class at, at the end of school and he'd, and he'd dog me all the way home. And um, so I, I learned early on the only way I could uh, keep him from beating me up was to um, distract him with uh, tall tales and true. So I used to bullshit my way home and just yammer on until uh, I could just keep one eye on my, my letterbox. I could see it coming up and then I'd just make a dash for it and then I was, I was home. But in the meantime, I'd just be crapping on to, um, just to keep his fists at bay. You know? yeah. just, if I talked fast enough, he wouldn't hit me. Worked a treat. Yeah, so perhaps that's probably the... That's what made me a writer. Yeah. Well, that's why people become comedians too, isn't it? But you became a writer. And, and maybe, you know, just having some person call you a poet of, what is it, baffled souls, um, maybe, you know, maybe I, maybe I just hypnotised him. <laughs> maybe it's exactly the same thing. So, so his, his bogus ideas about me were, you know, just me trying to distract him. So there's always the, hope in your books, and yet... You know, there, there, are, there aren't easy resolutions. And in Dirt Music, Jim Buckridge, there's that lovely phrase about, which I think we all understand, about needing the world to come at heel. Mm. You know, in his case, he's trying to atone. And for sin, that's mm. a, not a very contemporary topic, but mm. you raise it in your books, by, you know, atoning and doing something, not just repenting. And Eerie, you see, Keeley, he has all the credentials for a, to be rewarded. Karma should have rewarded him in life, shouldn't it? He has green credentials, he fought the fight honestly, he tried to stop the bulldozers, mm. and yet it doesn't work. No, we have this sort of expectation that there's going to be some kind of um, symmetry mm. to life. Yeah. Um, and, and that expectation uh, travels into literature as well. People expect that there's going to be 
uh, closure. Uh, and there isn't. You know, uh, most people die mid-sentence. Um, and if they're blokes, they do it on the dunny. Um, like Elvis. But, uh, yeah. And so I kind of... Um, some of some of sort of some of the kind of business of, of uh, acceptance is about accepting the la- life's lack of symmetry, um, and we we have this sort of uh, deep need to impose order um, on on the world, and I think life is a bit too lively for for order, um, and so you know I do have impatient readers who who uh, who write me you know passionate cranky letters about why my, the endings of my books are so uh, open, but it, just, it feels, feels honest to me. It, it reflects my experience of life, you know, where, you know, the sentence might end, but the story never, never ends. Um, and also, I, I get very good, as a reader, I get bored reading books where everything gets tied up at the end. Um, you know, the, it's, it's this sort of tedious business of you... you you come into land, you taxi for 20 minutes toward the terminal, then you've got to put the jetway out, and then, you, you know, the, the tray tables. And just, why, why do that, you know? Just I'm glad you raised this Leave topic the plane in the air. Because in the writers, what happens to Jennifer? What happens to her? I don't know. Um, um, she goes on and lives her life. I mean, uh, if, 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 if I was... If I was writing genre books, um, I'd understand. You've got, you've got to tie it up because you've, you've got an expectation of symmetry, which is hardwired into, you know, genre books like de- de- detective stories. Um, which you know, the last last quarter of a detective book, I could never be bothered reading because that's where everything gets explained. The least interesting part of the <laughs> of the book, all the tension has gone out of the thing once the, you know, you can just feel. Just—it's like the air has gone out of the balloon, and then suddenly it's just this flaxed, wet, slimy. Um, you know, a balloon's interesting and dangerous, and um, when it's pumped tight with air, I just remember it with my kids, particularly my middle son. Um, he's a muso, but the mo- for, for him, the most terrifying thing in existence was a really, really tight balloon. And if you did that thing where you just rub your fingers on it, goes, <laughs> and it might break. He's like. <laughs> It was like an, you know, an exploded bomb. Um, so, a, you know, a, a book or a, or a film or a piece of music that, that has this sort of tension in it that's, that's um, not easily resolved, that's interesting to me. That's, that's something alive. Um, and resolving something is kind of, kind of a, a bit boring, really, and also a bit bogus. That's why we all go to our graves um, having everything explained to us. And yet, the guns of Navarone ended well. Yeah, I was, I was, I was younger. It was ended well if you weren't a German. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of that either. <laughs> um, in Erie, uh, damn, I thought he should have got the Nobel Prize that guy. In Erie, there's also. I mean, I'm not. You know, I'm God knows I'm not a, a literary critic and haven't read all the books in Christendom. But that's why I'm talking to you. Um, <clears throat> let's be honest. But there seems to me in Erie to be the best chronicling of alcoholic disintegration since Malcolm Lowry, really. I mean, <laughs> how do you know about that oh, stuff? Research, mate. 
I kept every receipt for every bottle. I've got suitcases of them. Um, it was kind of fun, actually, to, to, to write that, you know, I think the book starts with like 30-something pages of, of just a hangover. Um, and, it was, and it took me months and months and months to drink enough to, uh, to, 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 to get it right. Um, no, it was, um, it was, it was really hard work because it's a little bit like writing about, you know, surfing or sex. I mean, it's, it's sort of boring. Everyone, it's been done, you know. Um, so it was, a, it was a bit of a challenge. But I couldn't really begin it any, any other way. I mean, you've got this guy whose life is truly coming to pieces and he, he, he's in despair and he's just trying to drink himself a new asshole, really. Um, and sorry, that was elegant. <laughs> Betraying my origins. <clears throat> um, but yeah, Malcolm Lowry knew, really knew what he was talking about, to give him, to give him credit. You know? yeah, did, yeah. And I've had the odd slightly off morning, but uh, nothing. I, mean, I think if I had, had drunk as much as, um, and taken the kinds of pills that my character is taking, that I, I wouldn't even be here, let alone able to, you know, attempt writing 31 pages about it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a slightly dyspeptic view of, uh, of, of the world in, in quite a literal sense, I think. There are marvellous 31 pages. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you. It's a chalk raffle, isn't it? Um, your fans. Um, you're a great bloke as well as a great writer. It's been a real pleasure. And we look forward to everything that you write as we have done in the future as we have done in the past. Thank you, mate. An honour to have you here. These Thank people you. are all Jim on Winters. drugs, I think. <laughs> I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.